0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning, Lord, to worship you and to worship your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we come because you are our only audience. You are our only audience and you are the one who speaks and is speaking through your word. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit, give me utterance that your people may hear the truth, that they may know your Son, Jesus Christ, that they may be saved, that they may be edified, and that they may mature and be reminded of who they are in him, that they are not citizens of this world, but are citizens of heaven that are just... Sajoning, just being Hebrews, for heaven is our permanent home. And Lord may you remind us through the preaching of your word that this is not a place for us. This earth, this life is a place of death, is a place of the graves, of dead bones and dead men. For heaven is a place of those who live, those who live in Christ, who have believed in Christ. So Lord, I pray for your light and life that it may inhabit and possess us, your people, through the gospel message. Lord, help me to preach Christ. I pray in his precious name. Amen. We are still in John. You guessed that right. We are in the book of John, John 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14. And it reads And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory heirs of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And by way of title, I have determined to title this sermon, And the word became flesh, or the word the word tabernacled among us, or the third alternative title, and the word pitched his tent among us. It is inconceivable to the minds of men that the God of eternity would identify with man to the extent of taking up the same nature as them, and yet without sin. And the doctrine or teaching of God adding human nature to himself is called the Incarnation. It's called the Incarnation, which comes from a Latin word which means to clothe oneself with. So God has clothed himself with human nature. And we shall be hearing from John what became of the word that was in the beginning with God. There are professing Christians who say they believe in Jesus, but they do not know what they believe about Jesus. Some believe that he is God, and yet others do not believe that his humanity was real. Some believe that he was a human being, but was not God. So the struggle that we have with respect to understanding the person of Christ is How much of Christ was human and how much of Christ was God? John is going to tell us, as he has already told us in the introduction, that Christ, the word who was in the beginning with God, was God. And now he's going to tell us that this word that was in the beginning with God was also fully human. the thinking behind those that disbelieved the person and nature of Jesus in John's day was that a spiritual being like God could not defile himself by making any kind of contact and union with fleshly humanity. So basically their thinking was God is spirit and being a spirit He is of such perfections that he could not make that kind of conduct as the apostles were preaching about Christ. And this, for those who have read, um, was a Gnostic idea that the spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. So John says to set this straight, And he comes out swinging and very unapologetic about the nature and person of Christ. John says, this logos is the eternal word that was with God from the beginning. And yet this logos has taken up human nature such that he gets hungry. Such that he drinks wine gets thirsty, gets weary, he cries. He has a mother, Mary, was moved by anger and compassion. He prayed and he read the scriptures. He's hung on the cross and he dies. He sheds his blood This is the word of God that was in the beginning with God and yet when he takes up human nature when he adds human nature to himself he so identifies with us that he does everything that man does except sinning. Christ did not sin not even a single second. But Ultimately, Jesus does not care what men say about him. Jesus does not care what men say about him at the end of the day. It's your concern that you say the right things about him. Jesus says, if you have to be saved, you have to believe and know him for who he is. As the Logos, as the word of God who became flesh, who is the Lamb of God, who is the life and light of man. And he would go on and say in John 6.45, And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has had and learned from the Father comes to me. So the only way that you are going to know Jesus for who he is and believe him for who he is, is if God the Father has taught you. God has to taught you. And tell you who Jesus is. So John is going to. Answer both critics. Who say Christ could not have been God. Which he has done in the introduction. And now he's going to tell us that this Christ. Who was God. Who is God. Is. Human. And both natures find their fullness and perfection in him. They find their fullness and perfection in him and are in harmony with each other in the same person without any confusion. So John has, in the beginning, started by going where nobody else went. He went back to the beginning of beginning. The beginning before the beginning. And gave this word a personal existence and a personality. It is not just the word as spoken word, but the word is actually a being who exists as a separate person of the Godhead. God being Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet being one God. So John has told us in this chapter that this one who is the word of God also does the works of God, like creating things from nothing. And not only that, he also possesses the same qualities or attributes of God, like possessing light that cannot be put out. And he told us that in him was the life, and that life was the light of man. And so this word that became flesh does all the things that God alone does. And Jesus Christ had the understanding in John 5, 19, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Listen to this. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Whatever God the Father does, the Son also does. Which means, if it's creation, the Son also does the work of creation. What does that make Christ? It makes Christ God. And people will say, well, Christ never said he was God. It's because they can't read. He was always saying that he was God. So having given us the excellency and the origin of the word and its relation to creation. You see that as you are reading the first chapter, we are told in the first three verses who Christ is. And then we are told that he is the one who created all things. And now John tells us his relation to man. What was Christ's relation to man? He goes beyond Christ created all things. He created man. But he also took up the same nature as man. And what we see here is that Christ shows some chief interest in man as the pinnacle of his creation. The God of eternity does not come and assume the nature of angels, but he comes and assumes the nature of man. He doesn't come and assume the nature of any other animal or any other created thing, which he could have done if he wanted to. But he comes and he assumes a nature. Uh, that is uh, a sinless nature of man. He identifies with us. Jesus Christ did not die for angels. Jesus Christ did not come and take up the same nature as angels. And the right of Hebrews talks about that. That Christ was revealed for the sake of the descendants of Abraham And not for angels. So Christ as the Logos came in condescension and humiliation. And when we talk about the condescension and humiliation of the word of God. We are saying God by his very nature of being God. When he takes up any nature which is below him. That's humiliation. Because God is perfect. And God is God all by himself. And he does this humiliation. He goes through this humiliation. That he may identify with his creatures. That live in darkness. And are owned by darkness. That he may lift the darkness from them. And to put them in his light and life. So Christ was revealed. That he may lift us. All who were in darkness from the darkness of sin and death. And as we go through the book of John, as we have mentioned before, John does not take us into the manger. John is not much into Christmas. John is not much into Christmas gifts. He is interested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he bypasses the manger and goes straight to the glory of the word who took up human flesh as the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a very high declaration that God became man. At this point, John unites the word that was in the beginning and the flesh as one being the person of Jesus Christ. And he shall continue to identify this word now as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He doesn't talk about the word anymore beyond this point, he identifies that word as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. John does not say the word became man. Or the word took a body like possessing someone else's body. If you read carefully, John does not tell us that the word became man. He says the word became flesh. And we are going to explain what that means shortly. But here, what the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 10 verses 5 and 7. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said... Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And in Isaiah 7.14, we, re- we read this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a, so- a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And, we- and she will call his name. Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this was Old Testament passages that were already anticipating the coming of this Messiah. But we are already being given hints of the nature of this Messiah. That he's not just being born of the virgin, but he has these titles with him that communicate a lot more things about him. That he's not just going to be a human being, but he's going to be more than that. He's going to be called the mighty God. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. God has tabernacled with us. So the incarnation of Christ. Was not. The virgin birth. The incarnation of Christ. Was not the virgin birth. Rather the virgin birth. Was just the means. And the sign. By which the incarnation happened. as what Isaiah said. The sign was. There is going to be a virgin who is going to give birth. And the child that will be born will be called Emmanuel. So the virgin birth was a sign of the incarnation of Christ. So the body that Christ had, where did he get it from? Where did Christ get his body from? Listen to Matthew 1, verse 20. But while he thought about these things, that is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the blood of Christ was not made by Mary, Otherwise he would not be sinless. Because Mary was a sinner. Just like you and I. Rather the body of Christ. Was made by the Holy Spirit. As we read from the book of Hebrews. It says a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. I come to do. Your will, O oh God. For it is written in the scroll, in the scroll of the book, it is written about me. So the blood of Christ was made by the Holy Spirit. The body of Christ was made by the Holy Spirit. And the blood of Christ also was preserved by the Holy Spirit even when he died. Because we know from the scriptures, even Apostle Peter would cut from the sounds and say, you will not let your Holy One to see corruption. So Christ never decomposed. His body never started to decay as he was in the grave. His body was sinless and so it could not decay. The Holy Spirit preserved the body of Christ. So the virgin birth was the evidence that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. The virgin birth was the evidence that Christ Jesus was God in the flesh. So John says, and the word became flesh. Apostle John uses the word flesh in a different way that Apostle Paul uses it. Apostle Paul uses flesh in a negative sense to denote the sinful human nature. So in the understanding and theology of Apostle Paul, the flesh is used in a negative way to say sinful human nature. However, Apostle John uses it to say human nature, a nature of being. So like God has a nature of being as God. Angels have a nature of being as angels. And humans have a nature of being as human beings. This is how John is using flesh. He is saying this Christ actually took the fullness of the nature of humanity. So the Logos took another full nature of being to itself. He added something to himself that he did not have before. So the word became flesh can also be phrased as the word tabernacled among us. That is the same word right there that is being translated. The word became is tabernacled among us. And by this, Apostle John is drawing you to the Old Testament. And to tabernacle is to pitch a tent. There's a lot of allusions and associations with the Old Testament tabernacle here that John would want us to have. Where Israel, through the Levitical priesthood, would meet with God. They met God in the tabernacle, and God came to meet his people in the tabernacle. So now God has come to pitch himself among his people in a deeper way than that structure in the Old Testament. He has come and pitched himself right into the nature of man that man may draw near to God by him. But there's more to understand. There's more to understand. When the tabernacle was first set up uh, we read in Exodus 40 verse 34 that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There was glory that was associated with the presence of God in the temple and this was called the Shekinah glory. And Shekinah means dwelling, and is used in reference to God dwelling among his people. So John comes and says all the representations of the tabernacle and the visible manifestations of God among his people, those visible manifestations of God are called theophanies. And John says those manifestations are now being perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ of which the two natures are important to it. In the Bible, a theophany, spelled T-H-E-O-F-H-A-N-Y, is a manifestation or visible appearance of God to man in a tangible way to the human senses. Often, but not always in human form. We have examples like the pillar of cloud and fire that the children of Israel had as they were going out of Egypt. And we also have a visit by angels, angelic beings showing up as men. And we had the angel of the Lord. And if it was an angel of the Lord, and the person who met with that angel of the Lord worshipped that angel and the angel accepted the worship. That one we call the pre-incarnate Christ or a Christophany, the appearing of a Christophany, the appearance of Christ. So John tells us that now the new place of the dwelling and full appearance of that glory is Jesus Christ as God and man. John sees Jesus as the new meeting place of God and man. And if God and man have to meet, they have to meet in Jesus and not in Moses. They have to meet in Jesus and not in Moses or anybody else. Because this Jesus is the new and greater Moses. John has it here. And we're going to see it. So he tells us that, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And by this statement, John probably had Exodus 33 in mind. And we are going to look at Exodus 33 verses 7 to 11 and verses 20 and 30 here's Exodus 33 7 to 11 Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp and called it the tabernacle of meeting and it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting which was outside the camp So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door, and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped Each man in his door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So what are we learning from John? Because John has this background and understanding that he wants us to know about this person of Jesus Christ. From verse 7 in Exodus 3, we read that everyone who sought the Lord had to go to the tabernacle of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord had to go to the tabernacle of meeting. They had to go to the appointed place of meeting with God. Even so now, God has appointed and pitched his tent that anyone who is seeking The Lord may go and meet with him there. So none shall seek the Lord outside the appointed place of meeting who is Jesus Christ. None shall meet the Lord anywhere else other than the appointed place of meeting who is Jesus Christ. But why was the tent pitched outside the camp? But the instruction is very clear that the tent was always going to be pitched outside the tent of Israel. Outside the camp of Israel. Here's Hebrews 13, verses 11 to 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priests for sin are burned outside the camp. So you see, even the animals are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that's the connection, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. What was the problem with the camp? Why could the tabernacle not be pitched in the tent? I mean, in the camp. The camp had issues. The camp had problems because it was inhabited by the sinful and unclean. It was not holy. It was inhabited by sinful men. So going outside of the camp was a type of separation from sin. The animal sacrifices that typified Christ were offered outside the camp because Christ was to be offered or crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. And the tabernacle was pitched outside the camp also because Christ, who is the true temple and tabernacle of God, was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, according to Hebrews 7.26. So John says, And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. In this chapter, Exodus 33, if you read the whole conversation, Moses wanted to see the face of God. That's the hallmark of that chapter. Moses wanted to see of the face of God. He's like, oh Lord, I've been hanging out with you for this long. You have allowed me to see all these things, but you haven't allowed me to see your face. Not the actual weather. So here, part of the conversation. Exodus 33, verses 20 to 23. But he said, this is God uh, talking to Moses. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I want you to catch this. John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. So in John 1, verses 14, 17, and 18, John has Exodus 33, verses 20 to 23 as the background. Watch this. Verse 14, in John 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John beheld the glory of God in Christ, which Moses could not. Verse 17, 18. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 18, and no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him or explained him. So Moses wants to see the face of God. But he is told In verse 20, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So what do we see? Moses only could behold the glory of God from behind. Moses could only look at God from behind. And even saw from the cover and safety of the rock in which he was placed by God himself. And if you and I have to see God, he has to put us in the rock who is Christ Jesus. You cannot see God outside Christ Jesus. He says to Moses, you cannot see my face because if you see my face, you shall die. But if God has put you in Christ Jesus, And this is how God puts you in Christ Jesus. He has chosen you in Christ and put you in Christ before you were born. God put you in Christ Jesus, who is the rock. The rock that is being talked about here is not just a piece of rock. It's Christ Jesus, who is the rock. So God says, if you have to see me because you are a sinful being... I have to put you into the rock, Christ Jesus, that you may see me without dying. So, this one, this word, this word that became flesh is the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. So, everything that is the glory of God is found in its fullness in Christ Jesus. Now to some understanding. If Moses. Moses was a prophet. Of the Old Testament. Moses is the one. That received the law from God. And as the mediator of the law. That is what we mean. When we say Moses. Moses is a mediator. We are saying he received the law from God and then he gave it to the children of Israel. If Moses, the mediator of the law, could not see the back of God with the law, because he is the representation of the law, and with the law, he could not even be allowed to see the back of God. But the one that comes as the word of God, He has seen God and has made God known. He has explained God. So do you see the superiority of Christ that is being taught here? Even more, the superiority of the new covenant that is coming with Christ. That's what John is building the background for. Because we are going to learn later, Christ inaugurating a new covenant is in in his own blood. So no one can see God through obedience to the law. You can't see God through obedience to the law. The law only tells you of your need of the mediator. Of your need to be put in the rock. The law could not help Moses to see God. The law could not help Moses to see God. That is why you need Jesus Christ. That is why you need Jesus Christ. You cannot be good enough to see Jesus Christ. By yourself, it's impossible. God has to put you in Christ. So John says, we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory that is we saw his glory with our own naked eyes and john would say the same thing in 1 john verse 1 to 3 he says that which was from the beginning which we have had which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life The life that was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. So John is talking about seeing a real person of Christ. He saw the glory of Christ beyond just the Shekinah glory that used to come and overshadow the tabernacle. He saw God himself in Christ Jesus. He saw the glory of Christ in the miracles. Christ turning water into wine. Christ healing the blind. John saw that. But even more... John saw the glory of Christ unveiled at the Mount of Transfiguration. Because he also was there with Peter and James. But in the teaching of John, the ultimate glory of Christ was not going to be in the miracles. The ultimate glory of Christ was going to be on the cross. The glory of Christ was going to have its full demonstration on the cross of shame. And John would tell us in John 12 verses 23 and 4 and says, But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. So, in the understanding of Jesus, this is glory. Dying and being buried and resurrecting, that's glory. And Jesus himself saw the cross as the ultimate show of his glory and God's glory. Listen to John 13. Verses 31 and 32. So when he, that's Judas, Judas Iscariot had gone out. Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. So glorify is used five times. In just two verses. The glorification of Christ was in the cross. So you see, the cross of Jesus is the glory of God. The cross of Jesus is the glory of God. So if we are to identify with the Jesus of John, we have to identify with the cross of Jesus. So when we are teaching and we are preaching about Jesus. And we are not teaching and preaching about the cross. We are not preaching Christ. We have no interest in Christ as long as we have no interest in the cross of Jesus. So to reduce Christ, the cross of Christ into something other than what Christ makes of it, is not to have the interest of Christ. So the teaching that we have out there of making Jesus a vending machine, making Jesus a bakery of free loaves of bread, that has nothing to do with the cross. The prosperity gospel and the health and wealth now, your best life now teaching, is not the gospel. That has nothing to do with Christ Jesus. Because there's no glory in it. The glory that Christ is talking about is him getting onto the cross as our substitute and getting punished by God. For our sins that we may be delivered from them. That's the glory of Christ. So John says the glory is of the only begotten of the father. This word is the glory of the only begotten of the father. How are we to understand the word begotten? Because for some who can read the Bible they'll say oh look here it says only begotten of the father so Jesus is not God but that can't be the understanding that John wants us to have given what he has already told us in the introduction he has already told us that this word who became flesh is God so then you can't say this word is God and then uh, say he is not God doesn't make sense so Jesus Christ is God so what are we to understand of the word only begotten the Greek word that is translated here as only begotten is monogenes M-O-G-E-N-E-S you can see it's a compound of two words there, there's mono and genes as in genesis mono means one and Genesis is beginning. And it's used to mean or to say one and only kind. One and only kind or the single of its kind. The only one of its kind. So it's speaking to the uniqueness of Christ as God the Son, not to his kind of generation or Genesis. Genesis. So John uses this word to carry this understanding. And even Luke uses the same word to carry the same understanding. In Luke 7.12, it's used of a certain widow whose son had died. And he says, And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. The only son of his mother. That was... The same word as begotten. And Luke would also use the same word with respect to Jairus' daughter in Luke 8.42. Where uh, she is referred to as the only daughter. And in Hebrews 11 verse 17. It's used of Isaac. It's used of Isaac. Uh, It's used as Isaac as the only begotten of Abraham. How can it be? That Isaac is the only begotten of Abraham. Listen to this. Genesis 22. Verse 2. God says to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So take your son, your only son, Isaac. And we know that Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael. And Ishmael was his firstborn. But Isaac was a special and unique son because he was a child of promise. Isaac was a unique and special son because he was born when his mother was past childbearing age. The mother of Isaac was very, very old when Isaac was born. Like grandma old. So there's a unique character and quality to the relationship between the father, God the father, and the son Jesus Christ. And John is going to tell us more about that relationship uh, and he's going to say he's going to give us this record of Jesus saying, I and my father are one. And he would say, he who has me has my father also. So the father and the son have this unique relationship such that whatever you do to the one, you do to both. If you believe in the son, you believe in the father. If you believe in the father, you believe in the son. They are inseparable. John says, we beheld his glory. okay, Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So the word that became flesh comes adorned with those qualities that belong to God alone. He comes not just with grace and truth but full of grace and truth. John intends for us to understand something here. He's not just saying he's full of grace. Uh, he came with grace and truth. He says full. Because the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth can only be found in God. Truth and grace are attributes of God alone. So much for saying Jesus Christ never said, Is God. So, this word who became flesh is a bringer of God's grace for the purpose of redeeming his people. In him, God has been favorably disposed to a people who were hopeless. In him, God has given man the true reality. Reality is only found in God who created all things truth like light and life only come from god so john gives us a higher and different dimension of truth we can say well your mother is rebecca that's true that's a true statement But John gives us a different understanding of truth beyond just saying something that's correct. He is saying truth is a person. Truth is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. So you'd say, I am the truth, the way and the life. I am the truth. So truth is a person. It's not just saying the right things. So then, truth cannot be known outside knowing the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, you do not know anything. If you don't know Jesus, you do not know the truth. So then, being ignorant is not about not being educated You are ignorant if you do not know Jesus Christ. That's what they're saying. So if you kids know Jesus Christ this day, you know more truth than people who have PhDs and are professors in colleges. That's what they're saying. Being educated and knowing truth are different. There are plenty of people who are educated, but they do not know the truth because they don't know Christ. If you know Christ, you know the truth. And Jesus Christ said, You know the truth, and He shall set you free. <laughs> How do you get set free by the truth? Well, the truth is a person. The truth is a person, and the person is God. And he will deliver you. The Lord is my salvation. So having said this. John has a lot of interest. He is not just telling us stories. The Holy Spirit is not just telling us stories about Jesus. He wants us to have understanding of who Jesus is. And what Jesus came to do. So we want to know why God sent his son the way that he did. Why was it not enough for God to just show up like he was doing in the Old Testament and just showing his glory in the cloud and the pillar of fire over his people? Why did God send Jesus Christ? Why did he send an angel? But there are a lot of angels in heaven. Why did he send his own son? And why did Christ come and become a man? Why did he add the nature of human beings to himself? The main reason why God took up human flesh was so that God could be reconciled to sinful men through the work of redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. The reason why God sent his own son was so that he may be reconciled to sinful men or reconciled to himself. Reconcile sinful men to himself through the work of redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus was revealed that he may do the work that was set forth in the new covenant in which he ended as your legal representative your surety or your substitute that he may perform all the terms required of your salvation. You could not do Anything that God required you to do to be saved, you could not do it. You don't have the power, you don't have the will to do it. So, God has to do it by Himself. God set the terms or the things that He required to be done if anyone had to be saved. So Christ says, here I am. I've come to do your will, O God. And he comes to do that for you. That's what he came to do. That's why Christ became a man. So the, the, the reconciliation that Christ came to do could not happen without the shedding of blood. For there's no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood. So the new covenant was inaugurated and sealed with the blood of Christ. Remember, when we do communion, we say, This is the blood of the new covenant. The blood, or Christ will say, This is the new covenant in my blood. Which is said for you. For the remission of sins. So when Christ came as God. He is coming. That he. Instead of you dying for your sins. He goes into contract with God. That he may die for your sins. That they may be removed away from you. But. When we're talking about dying for sins, we are not saying anything can just die for sins. You can't offer your cat to die for you or offer your dog to die for you. That's why the book of Hebrews would say the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. There's nothing that dies that can remove sin. There's nothing. Nothing in the created world that can die can remove sin. Christ himself has to come and die for you that he may remove sin. And we know from the scriptures, from Genesis, that man had been separated and made strangers and enemies with God through the sin of Adam. The first Adam, we call the federal head of all humanity, had brought a curse of death And darkness on all of us, on all of humanity, of all men and women and children who were born after them. And God had judged and condemned all humanity as guilty of this transgression. And he had condemned them to death. And this is the first imputation of sin. When we say imputation, we are saying the sin of someone else is reckoned to somebody else. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, God sees them as you doing it too. That's imputation. So the first imputation of sin was the sin of Adam to us, us who are his descendants, And then the second imputation of sin was our sin unto Christ. Our sin unto Christ. Christ who was sinless took up our sin. And then in turn we had a third imputation. And that was not sin but the righteousness and obedience of Christ to us. So we did not have any righteousness. If you had an account, like a bank account, that said, Clarissa, it didn't have any money in it. It didn't even have any penny. There was nothing in it. Okay? Nothing. But this is what Christ did. He came, and he put something in it. And he put his own righteousness in it. And he filled your bank account With so much righteousness that you can't use it all in all of eternity. Now if the condemnation that is in Adam has to be lifted. One innocent like the first Adam had to be raised. Because when Adam was first created he was innocent. And sinless. And now that he disobeyed God. He died. And anyone who came after him was born after the first Adam who had been corrupted by his disobedience. Now if there is to be salvation, one like the first Adam has to come. One like the first Adam has to come. But he has to come more than the first Adam. He has to be more than the first adam if anyone has to be saved and saved eternally and since there was no other sinless adam that could be found from the stock of the fallen there was only one way by which men could be saved the one who could f- lift humanity from sin and death had to come from outside the world that was condemned by sin and death this one had to come from a place that is free from condemnation. A place that has life and light. This one has to come possessing life, light and righteousness and yet be able to die. He gets fitted for death by taking up the nature of those who die. By becoming a human So God becomes man. That's beautiful. God becomes man that he may bring life. But you as you are without Christ, God says you are dead. He says you have no life whatsoever. Because there's no life on earth. If you are driving around what you see, you see a lot of cemeteries. Cemeteries is where they lay down dead people. There are no cemeteries in heaven. There are no cemeteries in heaven. Because no one dies in heaven. Heaven is a place of life. So the one who came to take up our sin came from heaven, a place of life. So he brought what he had with him. You see, you don't bring what you don't have. You brought the iPad because you have it. You can't bring what you don't have. So Christ, as God, brings what he has. And what did he bring? He brought life, light, righteousness. And that's what he has given you and me. In Genesis three fifteen, in Genesis three verse fifteen and sixteen, we hear of the promised redemption through the seed of a woman. This is what the Lord says: "I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, "I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In the sin of Adam, all of God's children died. In the sin of Adam, all of God's children died, so much that God was left childless. Very important. When Adam sinned, God was left with no children. And have you ever wondered why Eve was the first one to eat the fruit and not Adam? Eve was the first one to eat the fruit and not Adam. Eve is a type of the bride of Christ. Of which the first Adam was a type of Christ. We know that from Apostle Paul. So if Adam is not to lose his only bride, if remember what the promise of God was to them. On the day that you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. So Eve has eaten. So the judgment is already on her to die. So if Adam is not to lose his only bride, he also has to enter into the same darkness and condemnation as has been entered by his bride. Oh, that's beautiful. If 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 Adam is not to lose his bride, he also has to enter into the same darkness and condemnation as his bride. So Adam had to eat the fruit. He had to eat the fruit that he may be Together be condemned and joined with his bride. He has to suffer darkness also for the sake of his bride. And remember, at this time, as Eve has eaten the fruit, we have two people here who are in two states of judgment. The bride is condemned, the Adam is still innocent. The bride is condemned, Adam is still innocent. So, what happens? The Adam who is innocent has to eat the fruit that he may be condemned together for the sake of his bride. <laughs> That's beautiful. <clears throat> so, Christ, who is the second Adam whose bride has eaten. And has been plunged into the darkness of sin and death. Is the only one innocent left. Is the only one sinless who is left. In order for him to redeem his bride. And be joined with her. That is the church. He has to save the church from her sins. By having the sins imputed to him. That he by that may be plunged into the darkness for the sake of her. So God has to come and be born by a woman. He is the seed of the woman. But in being born by a woman, he takes upon himself the curse and responsibility of bearing children to God. Eve was supposed to multiply and be fruitful and bring children to God but through her disobedience and Adam, she lost the right to bring forth children to God. Remember what God has said. Go forth and multiply. Give me, raise more children for me. But he failed. Now, God has to do it himself as in the beginning. So John says in John 1, 12, 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So man could not bring children to God anymore because their image had been distorted by sin. The parents are distorted and so are the children. The apples Don't fall very far away from the tree. The whole lamp of door is fouled. And so Job would ask, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. So you children are crazy because your parents are crazy. That's what that is saying. You are crazy because your parents are crazy. Apples don't fall far away from the tree. Right? So God has now to give birth to children to himself through Jesus Christ. And listen again to the curse in Genesis. (laughs) Listen again to the curse. It says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. In pain, you shall bring forth children. To who? To God. And to this, Jesus would say in John 16, 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that." A human being has been born into the world. So Jesus sees himself as going on the cross to bear children to God. And you're going to see this, we are going to teach this in John 3, because in the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus is talking about being born again, he doesn't give, after he cut Nicodemus off, he just continues talking. And when he continues talking, He ends up talking about the cross. Just as Moses raised the serpent, so shall the son of man be raised. That is talked about in the context of a new birth. So the raising of the serpent in the wilderness so that those who looked at it lived. In Jesus' understanding, is a type of what is about to happen to him. It's the type of his ministry on the cross. So it's a type of child delivery. So Jesus, as he's going to the cross, he knows what his work is for. He is going to the cross to bear children to God. And he goes through birth pains. He goes through birth pains. He sweats blood. His hour has come. His hour has come to give birth to children that belong to God. So he says in John twelve twenty seven 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's the glory of Christ. So this is what it means that those who received the word were born of God. It means when Christ went on the cross... He went there, not just as a man, but as God giving birth to children that belong to God. So God takes up human flesh that he may take the curse of the woman and remove the curse that is on the children of the woman that he may be joined to his bride. It's brilliant. Galatians 4 verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. The son of God was sent. You do not send someone who does not exist before they are sent. I can't say, I'm sending Charlie before Charlie is born. Right? Can you? Charlie has to be born and then I can say, I sent Charlie to get me my hymn book. So, this is saying the one who is sent is existing before they have been born. So Christ existed before he was born. And he existed not as an angel, but he existed as God. But listen to what he was sent to do. He came from God for the purpose of redeeming us from the curse of the law. But not only that, that we may receive the adoption as God's sons. And this is the same thing that John said in John 1.12, that those who received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. So you and I lost our sonship to God through the first Adam. We became children of the devil, not of God. And for us to be called the children of God again, We needed to be restored to God. We needed to be born again by God, not by our mother. We needed to be born again by a man. So we were born by a man. Born, a man got pregnant and gave birth to children who belong to God. So the next time we have a sermon called when a man got pregnant and gave birth to children. Jesus Christ is the man. So what we see happening with Christ coming is he's revealed that he may remove the shame that was on Eve And have it restored through the birth of Christ through Mary. Through Mary. The virgin birth of the seed, as I said, testifies to the deity of Christ and the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So, what is the means of the new birth? The new creation. Is the incarnation of cross uh, is the incarnation and cross of Jesus Christ. If Christ does not come in the flesh, there is no new birth. because for you to have a new birth, you need a new mother. you need new parents. you need to be put in a different kind of womb, not your mother's womb. So, God takes up human nature to enable him to give birth. Christ, as the word of God, takes up human nature to enable him to give birth. And the cross, the cross was God's delivery room of you and I. The cross was God's delivery room for you and I. And if God is not hung on the cross, he cannot push the children out. If God is not hung on the cross, he can't push the children out, but he pushed them all out, and when it was done, he said it's finished. When Christ was done pushing and giving birth to the children that God wants, he said it's finished. And just like a woman who has given birth, his joy was made complete. His joy was made complete. Now, here are some scriptures. I won't talk to the theology. But these are scriptures that speak to everything that we have been talking about. These are the scriptures. And we'll read them because people don't read. You say, okay, go read Romans 8. They won't read it. But since someone is going to listen, I'm just going to read for them. These scriptures talk to the reason why Christ came. It's important for us to know the reason why Christ came. Because if we don't know that, anybody can come and just tell us whatever they think. So we have to hear what the word of God says. Okay, Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Hebrews 2, nine, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. What is lower than the angels? It's men. For the suffering... Of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So Christ was made lower than the angels for what purpose? For the suffering of death. And having suffered the death, that we who are in him may not test death. So you will never test death. You never die. Your body is gonna die, but you're gonna you're never gonna die. You're just going to wake up. like It's like a sleepover. You just wake up. and like, oh, this is where I am. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. We, the children, we are flesh. So he also partook of the same. For what reason? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So the devil has no more power over you. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For those who are in Christ, there is no more fear of death. Verse 16. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So his appearance always has something to do with sins, removal of sin and us being brought to God. For since he himself was tempted in that which, was, which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. All these things are happening because Christ took up human flesh. And in Philippians 2, verse 4 to 8, we read, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Hebrews 4, 14-15 Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ is able to hear everything that is troubling you, because he has been tempted also. So in closing, The incarnation, the incarnation, which is God clothing himself, taking human nature like a jacket. And he put it on himself that he may be like us was that was so that he could be qualified to be our high priest, that he could be qualified as our mediator. As our intercessor. As our death bearer. As our life giver. As our access and union. With God. And a high priest. Has to identify with the weaknesses. Of those that he represents. And for this reason. Also Christ took up human flesh. That he may be. A perfect high priest. Not just a high priest. A perfect high priest. And. It is because of this identification with human weakness that God says, come to me. He says, come to me, all who are weary and have laden, and I'll give you rest. I know that you are burdened by sin and you are afraid to approach. The reason why people are afraid to die is because they are sinners. And they are afraid to approach God. That's the only reason. That's the only reason why people exercise the crazy out of themselves. Because they want to live a day longer. They are afraid to die. But this is what he says to his people. Come to me. I have removed that which stood between you and me. I have removed it. I have enjoyed myself with you. I have pitched my tent with you that I may bring you to myself, Therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. And Apostle Paul would close for us and say in 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And this and sovereign grace, this is your Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ for his faithfulness to bring your grace and truth that we may know him your grace and truth that caused us to be born again we thank you for him enduring the shame of the cross that he would give birth to us your children that we may end the right to be called the children of God, to be called sons by adoption. For this, Lord, is the message of the gospel that through Jesus Christ you have reconciled yourself uh, to men, that any who seek such reconciliation can only come in the one that you have appointed, Christ Jesus is the tent of meeting. He is the appointed place of meeting between God and man. So he becomes God and man. That we may be joined to him. That God may draw near to us and us to him. What beautiful theology. Lord, we thank you for you are good. You are wonderful. And you teach. Lord, may you gather us again. In the name of Christ, we pray in his precious name. Amen.